Samuel 7. We're going to start reading at verse 3, and we'll read to verse 17, which is the end of the chapter, page 272, 272 in your pew Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 7. We read, or we finished off last week from 1 Samuel 6. 2-7 verse 2, and we saw that the ark's return to, to Israel, to Beth Shemesh, and then it was taken to Kiriath-Jerim. You'll remember that the Israelites lamented there after the Lord because of also what had happened in the days uh, that the ark returned. Uh, the 70 men were struck down, as you recall, until Israel lamented after the Lord. We'll begin actually at verse 2. From the day that the ark was lodged at kiriath Jerem, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he might save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth And Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. And there was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there he also judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. As for the reading of God's holy word, may he bless that word now to us. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, there's a story told of a visitor once to Rome to visit the Pope and to visit all of the papal houses and palaces and buildings and storerooms. 
And the Pope himself took this esteemed guest on a tour of all that there was to see. And at the end of this tour of the artwork, of the jewelry, of the gold, of all of the wealth of the nations that had been gathered in, the Pope said to this guest, No longer can the church say, Silver and gold have I none. You remember that's what Peter, the apparently first Pope of Rome, that's what the Roman Catholics would say. That's what Peter said when they were going in with he, he and John going into the temple and the, the lame man was there. I have neither silver nor gold, he said to that man, but what I have give I you. And then you remember what of course happened to that man. Well, in this story, this guest hears the Pope say, the church can no longer say silver and gold have I none. And very quickly and very wittily, this guest replies, but neither can the church anymore say arise and walk. The point being that while the church may now have great wealth and great worldly power, it no longer has spiritual power to deliver people from the chains of sin, the curse of sin. That's a profound word. That's a profound truth. It's humorous in its wittiness, but it is compelling in its truth and something that all churches throughout the history of redemption should reflect on. Because the church, like so many in the world, rests too often on its laurels and revels in its pride. Look at what we've done. Look at us. Look at our accomplishments. And it is in that moment that the church becomes weak, that its witness to the world becomes impotent, pointless, purposeless. We see something of that, don't we, at this age in Western civilization, in this time of world history. We hear much in the news about the end of the church, about the end of various congregations and denominations. There has been post-COVID quite a bit of discussion about some large or once large denominations in Canada that may never open their doors again as a result of the devastating effects of covid and there are people that say that's wonderful, that's good, that's, that's a blessing to the nation that these outdated mythological churches, these backwards people are no more. We live in the age of science and reason and truth. And so the, the world around us thinks that the end of the church age is a good thing. But the church's diminishment and the church's lack of power may not be because of the great advances of science. It may not be because of the great advances of of woke or liberal or progressive ideologies of governments that run contrary to the Word of God. We tend to think that's the problem. But the problem may be much closer to home. The weakness of the church, the failure of the church to witness, to be victorious in her work within this nation, within this community, may have more to do with their own relationship with the Lord, with their walk with Jesus Christ, which is what we're shown in our text this morning from 1 Samuel 7. Samuel's back. We have had this parenthetical time of chapters 4, 5, and 6. Now we're back to Samuel. And now that Samuel's back on the scene, some amazing things happen. Some amazing things happen beginning... 
with his leading the Israelites back into the way of humility. In chapter 6, at verse 19, we read that the Lord struck some 70 men because they looked upon the ark. And there we read that the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. They mourned because of the Lord. They mourned because of what God had done. In in a sense, we might say they were angry. They were mourning the Lord Himself. His righteousness. His power. Get this ark away from us, they said. Get this God away from us. Who can stand in His presence? There was not that unity. There was not that blessed fellowship between God and His people. They sent the ark to Kiriath-Jerim to be in the care of Eliezer whom they anointed for this task. But, but years have now passed. Twenty years have passed. Twenty years in which struggle was experienced, in which the Philistines continued to oppress the Israelites, in which there was continuing suffering. And the people, the people now were told, lament after the Lord. In chapter 6, verse 19, they mourn because of the Lord. In chapter 7, verse 2, they mourn or they lament after the Lord. That is, they now come before God and they say, Lord, we realize it's us. We realize our failures are what have brought about this time of struggle and sorrow. And we are grieved by our sin. And this change of tone, this change of mentality within the church, this humility within the congregation prompts Samuel the prophet to lead his people with the Word of God, calling them to genuine repentance and to concrete expression of their devotion to God. He says, if this is genuine, if you are returning to the Lord, then here's what you must do. Put away all your gods. And He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistine." Samuel takes this moment to say to the church, if you are aware now, if you've come to understand now that you are a people that need the great power of God at work within your life, then you must pursue Him and not be divided. You must seek Him and not the things of this world. And so Israel answers the call of the prophet. And they put away their idols. And the Lord blesses them. Because there is and there always will be the Lord's faithfulness and grace to those who turn to Him in undivided devotion and love. Indeed, as one commentator said here, it was the movement of Israel's heart, not the movement of the ark, that brought victory. You remember, of course, that they had brought the ark out at the chapter 4, at the beginning of this cycle, at the beginning of this brief moment. They had brought the ark out thinking they could move the ark and win the battle. But in this story, it is the moving of their hearts to trusting in the Lord that brings about the victory. And this is true not only in our text. This is true throughout redemptive history. This has been true for God's people from the beginning. This is true so often. Think of Egypt and the Exodus. Think of Jericho and the marching around the walls. Think of Elijah and Elisha. Think of the prophets of the exile. Think 
Think only of Jesus Christ and His opening ministry to the Israelites. What did He say? But repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, the church must always be utterly dependent upon God and His grace if they are to experience His power at work within them. They are to always and forever acknowledge that without Him they are hopeless and helpless, weak and frail. That's what the Israelites here had realized, had come to understand. And what we need to understand that we need to understand the very depths of our being at the very deepest part of who we are, that life without the Lord's favor is exhausting and empty and difficult. That is a challenging truth to maintain. Let's be honest. For at times we can both personally and corporately think, that is we can think as individuals and as congregation, that there is greater blessing in the world than in a walk with God. That there is greater joy in the experience of the material blessings of the successes of our society than in the piety of the church. We forget the Lord in our daily walk. And we forget or believe that passionless piety That lifeless Christianity can be experienced without consequence. That we can go to church and be unmoved. That we can walk in the world and be spiritually apathetic. Not be a witness to our neighbors and our co-workers. And that will be just fine. And what we discover in those seasons and in those moments where our religion has become routine, where our piety is just practical, that life is hard when we live contrary to the will and Word of God. The Lord's discipline of His church is real. And that the grief of an empty life is the heaviest of all. The Lord reminds us when we find ourselves in those moments of suffering and of emptiness that our failure was to forget Him. That we have a unique relationship with God because He has claimed us and that whatever we might believe about our sinning neighbor or co-worker, whatever we might believe about the church that is pursuing cultural relevance and that seems to be successful, That ultimately it is God in the end who will determine the outcome of our lives and that we are never free of His claim upon us. Oh yes, we can see how churches pursue relevance within the culture instead of resting in the Lord's will. Indeed, there doesn't seem to be an end to such churches in our day. A reminder of the itching ears of which the Apostle Paul speaks to Timothy And those churches may indeed appear at some human level as powerful, but their power to redeem, to transform lives is small and insignificant. Because the power of the Lord is not in it. The Lord is not blessing it. Even as personally we can experience that, can't we? 
We see baptized members of God's family think that they can live apart from God. Either as hypocrites sitting in church on Sunday, but living in open rebellion before God on Saturday night. Or as those who walk away from the faith and deny their Lord in the expectation and belief that life without religion and without this spirituality is actually a much better place. It's freer, it's healthier, it's everything better. And of course, there is blessing to be enjoyed in our world. Let's not deny that. But what we discover is that when we enter into that place, and while we reject the Lord's covenantal claim upon us, He in the end refuses to reject us. Not because He blesses us, but precisely because in those moments where we turn our back on Him, His judgment falls upon us and we groan under the weight of His almighty hand. That's why we always need to be led as our worship services each Lord's Day begin in humility, in penitence. There is in all of us the seeds of pride and the seeds of arrogance and self-reliance and selfishness such that if we don't tend that garden, if we don't weed the garden of our hearts, those plants will grow and dominate. The truth is we all harbor sin in our hearts, thinking it's not a big deal. We all wonder at times why our life seems to stall and why our prayers are a drain and not an invigoration, why we feel like we're running in mud in our relationships with each other. Why our work isn't satisfying. Why our overall quality of life doesn't seem to be what we expected. We have that malaise and we have that emptiness and that struggle and we wonder why. And then we come to church and we read again those ten words of the covenant and we are brought to why. Because we need, with every fiber of our being, the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And we need to start each day, we need to start by acknowledging that. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord. We need to take the call to repentance seriously if we would know the Lord's presence and power in our daily lives. That's a word to our young people today. A young people who are being harried and assaulted by our own culture, who are being told that none of this is true, who are being told that they can be free if they just throw off the shackles of this religious system. Do not listen to the lie. Do not pursue the lie. You will discover that it is a lie. You will discover the emptiness of this fallen world. You will discover the pointlessness and the brokenness of this culture. Humble yourself before God and He will lift you up. He will give you all your heart desires. It's a word to our comfortable Christians. Our comfortable members. It's a word to our blessed members. It's a weird word, isn't it, to blessed members? Blessing is always good, surely. And it is. It is the Lord's overwhelming grace and goodness. He's the overflowing fountain of good. He bestows upon us far more than we could ever ask or imagine, undoubtedly. But the truth is, we very quickly, like Moses warned Israel would, get very comfortable with our houses we did not build and orchards we did not plant and fields that we did not sow. And then we forget the Lord as Moses reminds Israel. 
We can forget the Lord too in our comfortable wealth, in our beautiful homes, in our enjoyable vacations. We need to be reminded that it's all a gift of grace, that it's all a love of God, that it's all of praise to Him. Let us never cease resting in Him for all our help and strength. And we, we do that when we genuinely acknowledge our need of His grace, when we humble ourselves under the call to repentance and say, yes, Lord, even for me, I need this grace. We may not like that call. It's too humbling, we think. And if this were only about how it, or admitting how miserable we are, maybe there would be something to it because, I mean, who doesn't admit they're hopeless and helpless? But the call to repentance that is issued here by the prophet Samuel who is called to, to, to his people is put away your idols. No longer pursue the world. The call to humility is not only a call to admit you're a sinner, but a call to place the priority of God in your life as number one. And to ask each moment of each day, Lord, how may I serve You? And how may I walk in Your way? The Lord claims our entire thoughts, hearts, minds, strength. He claims our entire bodies, our businesses, our families, and our friends. But when we walk in this way, what a blessing attends to us along the way. Doesn't that come to us here in this chapter in such a glorious way. Samuel says, gather all Israel at Mizpah. Mizpah is going to become significant again in 1 Samuel. It was significant in Judges. We'll see about that when we get into chapters 9 and 10. But he gathers them at Mizpah and he says, I'll pray to the Lord for you. They've repented. They've acknowledged their need of God's grace. And now Samuel says, now I'll seek, I'll mediate on your behalf. I will ask the Lord's favor to be restored to you. Now all Israel has come there and the Philistines hear about it. There's a gathering. The Philistines are still the overlords, we might say, in this land at this time. And what are these Israelites doing? And what do they think they can do? They aren't allowed to gather together like this. There's no freedom of assembly here. When people get together, then there's trouble. And so they hear there's a gathering at Mizpah, so they get the army together and down they come. And the dust kicks up into the air and the sound of marching feet starts to vibrate through the land and the Israelites in Mizpah, unarmed and unprepared for battle, tremble in fear. But in that fear, they do the absolute best thing they could. They say to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that He may save us from the hand of the Philistines. They don't cry for the ark to be brought into the land or into the camp, rather as they had done in chapter 4. They don't They don't seek victory with might and majesty, with arms and armies. They look only to God. Cry out to God for us. Let Him give us the victory. And then what does Samuel do? He, he as priest, grabs a nursing lamb and offers it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Again, remember the tabernacle is most likely destroyed at this time. There's no altar where Israel can come to gather. There will be at the end of the chapter when Israel or when Samuel builds an altar uh, before the Lord. But at this point, 
There is no place to go, no church to rush to, no presence of God to seek. It can only be done there in the field at Mizpah, but, but even there the Lord hears His people and sees the sacrifice that is offered before His people. A nursing lamb as a whole burnt offering, completely consumed, a holocaust. That's what that word means. A whole burnt offering is a holocaust. Consumed in its entirety. And it, it is most obviously, isn't it, to us who know the Word of God and who know how the story of redemption works, such a beautiful and powerful picture of Golgotha, of Good Friday, of the cross of Calvary, of the Lamb of God slain there for the sins of His people. That is the picture here, isn't it? Here are the people, weak and frail, about to be set upon by an army more powerful than they, who will destroy them, And they cry out to God for deliverance and for the sake of the Lamb who was slain. For the sake of the Son who would die. For the sake of the Savior who would sacrifice Himself that the sins of His people might be paid. Never miss that. Never miss that connection in texts like this and indeed in all of Scripture. It is not because the people are in need that the Lord answers them. There are many people in need the Lord doesn't answer. It isn't because they said the right words or had the right man at the front. It's not that Samuel was so pleasing to God. It's not even because they did the right ritual by sacrificing a whole burnt offering, a nursing lamb before the Lord. It's because that represented and pointed to Jesus Christ and His sacrifice for their thoughtless words, for their careless attitudes, for their pursuit of Baal and Asherah, for their rebellion against God. The Lord in that blood of that Lamb covered the wickedness of His people, cleansed His foul and filthy children, forgave His rebels and claimed them as sons and daughters. God dealt with the wickedness of His people. The wickedness that they were so burdened by. They were crying out to the Lord, we have sinned. We have failed. Deliver us. And the Lord says, for the sake of My Son, I will. And not a sword is lifted, but the thunder of God issues forth. And the Philistines are confused and are rushed away. And the people pursue them and destroy them with such a perfect destruction that even to the day of the writing of this book, and remember this book and its companion, 2 Samuel, are written quite a number of years after the fact. So for many generations, we would say for many decades, the victory that was experienced here was so complete a victory that the Philistines were no longer an issue. They were subdued, we're told, all the days of Samuel. And they took back from Ekron, Gath, and the territory, that land that had been captured by the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Now it's not perfect yet. We'll see more of Israel's victories over the Amorites and the Philistines and all of that when King Saul and David take the throne. But there is a decisive moment here where God thunders forth and defeats His people's enemies so that the church 
may have space to grow, peace to enjoy, blessing to experience, victory to stand in. Here here is the powerful antidote to the events that began this story in chapter 4. There was also then, you'll remember, a great noise when the ark came into the land. The ground shook and the Philistines trembled. And what did they then say? Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage, O men, or take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews. Be men and fight. And they fought and they defeated the Israelites with a great slaughter. Israel's arrogance, Israel's rebellion, Israel's immorality. You remember Hophni and Phinehas? You remember Eli? The Israelites, the church, was not living in purity, was not pursuing holiness, was not demanding righteousness from its leaders or from its members. Everybody was welcome. Everybody was okay. All sin is acceptable in the eyes of the Lord. Love is love, said the church. And the Lord left her. Left her in her misery. And then when the church said, Woe to us, for we are sinners in need of grace. When the church says we put away our bales and our astroths because they cannot bless as the living God blesses, then for the sake of the Lamb who was slain, the Lord thunders in defense of His people. And Samuel commemorates the moment with a stone, Ebenezer, which name means, thus far the Lord has helped us. Declaring always to the people and even to us today, those who trust in the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. Because the difference between chapter 4 and chapter 7 is not the faithfulness of God. He is faithful throughout. But the confession of the people who are dependent upon the Lord. And against all expectation, when the church turns from following the ways of this world and depends upon the Lord with heartfelt reliance and confession of need, then God's victory to them is complete and powerful and glorious. It's Amazing what God does for His people when they trust in Him. For a church that seems to be fading and faltering, for a people that seem to be small and insignificant, the power of God is greater than anything the church could ever do. Indeed, here is our encouragement as church in a season when we face increasing opposition from our culture and our workplaces, from our co-workers, And from our politicians. Both against our commitment to the Lord and in our walk with the Lord. Telling us, don't walk this way. Don't be this way. Don't live this way. There's so much better when you leave this behind. This is a word to us as individuals. This is a word to us. A Pentecostal word. Think about what we read in Acts chapter 3. A word of great promise for all who are struggling, tired, who are facing the burdens and the sorrows of this fallen world. What does Acts 3, 
Say in verse 19 and 20, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. The times of refreshing, we read, that times of refreshing may come. The power of God is to bless, to encourage, to lift up, to secure, to give victory. Victory over our sin. Victory over our addictions. Victory over our sorrows and struggles. Victory over our breaking and broken relationships. Victory over our pain and sorrow. Victory over all that the curse of this world places upon us. Victory maybe not in the way that we expect or the way that we want, but a victory so great and glorious that we have the strength to carry on and the power to serve within this world. And we are given this assurance from the Lord not for anything that we've done. That's the wonder of it. That's the beauty and the power of it. It is entirely in the Lamb who was slain. And in Him, when we rest in Him, then we will discover that the Lord provides for us what we need in order to carry on in this struggle. To deal with that shame and guilt. To deal with that pain and and burden. The Lord gives to us what we need. That's the promise of God. That's the example of God. That's the picture that God gives to us in our text. He says to you, those who trust in Me will experience this blessing, this power in their lives. And this is a word not only for us as individuals, but as church. Our culture and our expectations, our character as a community, as a church community, must be one of complete dependence on the Lord. The opening service or opening words of our service Each Lord's Day, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. They cannot be, that cannot just be a rote phrase. That cannot just be an empty phrase. The reading of the law, the confession of our sins, they can't just be words we mouth. They must be sincere and genuine truths. And that gospel that is poured out into our lives, that declaration of God's saving grace in Jesus Christ that has to fill our hearts with confidence and joy. Our worship must define us and encourage and equip us and challenge and comfort us. Because this is our God too. This is who God is for us. Who God is for us in Jesus Christ. The God who blesses His people when they walk in dependence upon Him. That's what all of this is about in 1 Samuel 7. The Lord is preparing His people for the day when His King will come. There's going to be some hiccups along the way. There's going to be King Saul. That's not going to be great. We're going to see that soon enough. King David, well, that's going to be a bit better, but there's going to be a bit of darkness there too, isn't there? There's going to be King Solomon. Starts really good, ends really bad. There's Rehoboam. There's a lot of kings that do a lot of things that are really good. There's King Hezekiah. The Lord blesses him greatly until he decides to show the envoys all of his wealth and says, look at how successful I am. And the Lord says, that's it. I'm done. You're going to go into exile. Your sons and your grandsons, they're going to leave because you haven't learned the lesson of dependence upon me. Let us learn that lesson. If we as church wish to be strong, if we wish to speak a word 
a word to our neighbors and our coworkers, to our community and our culture, if we want to say to those who are broken and breaking, to those who are under the power of sin, under the curse of sin, if we want to be able to say, arise and walk, then the power begins now with our acknowledging before God our need, with our humbling ourselves before the Lord, with our resting confidently in the finished work of Jesus Christ, where the church depends upon the Lord, there the power of God is unleashed in Jesus Christ for the sake of His name and for the glory of God. So let us not boast in our riches. Let us not boast in our wisdom. Let us not boast in our strength. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows the Lord that He knows His love, that He knows His grace in Jesus Christ, and that He lives for Him. Let's ask the Lord for strength in that in prayer. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, Your Word does call us